This is a Frontier Center for Public Policy audio recording. All Frontier Center for Public Policy audio recordings are in the public domain. For more information, visit www.fcpp.org. Recording by N. Avila. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Famous words by Martin Luther King Jr. That white female teachers make up the bulk of the K-12 teaching force in Canada, including some 80% in the province of Manitoba, should not surprise anyone. For a variety of well-known reasons, women have long been attracted to teaching. Less well-recognized is that in recent decades, the profession has been significantly enriched by becoming more diverse in class background, ethnicity, visible minority status, and sexual orientation. What is even less appreciated is that the proportion of men entering the profession, especially at the elementary level, K-6, has declined over the past 60 years. But these natural evolutionary changes weren't enough to satisfy the diversity demands of two members of the Faculty of Education at Winnipeg's University of Manitoba. Academics come administrators Melanie Jensen and Jerome Cranston spent four long years developing a new entry student admission policy designed to ameliorate the socio-historical disadvantages of certain groups. The University Senate approved the transformation, but not without controversy. In the June 2017 issue of University Affairs, Jansen and Cranston laid out their arguments for reducing the perceived dominance of privileged white women in the province's teaching profession. In our view, those arguments are full of logical contradictions and empirical errors. The new policy reserves 45% of spaces in the Bachelor of Education's program for students who belong to the following categories. Indigenous, Métis, or Inuit, 15%. Having a physical, mental, psychological, sensory, or diagnosed learning disability, 7.5%. LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, transsexual, two-spirit, or queer, 7.5%. Being a racialized minority, 7.5%. Or being socially disadvantaged. Homelessness, low levels of education, chronic low income, chronic unemployment, 7.5%. Jansen and Cranston helpfully explained in their magazine article that candidates may identify with as many categories as are applicable to them. But they don't have to prove that they belong to any of them because requiring documentation to prove one's identity only reinforces the hegemonic power of the university and its officials to adjudicate identity claims. In other words, no evidence is required to prove that applicants are legitimate members of these traditionally disadvantaged groups. Nor is there any rationale for an ad libdom categorization which simplistically and arbitrarily solidifies fluid identities. Sexual orientation, disability, racialization, imposed ethnic identity, and social disadvantage are all intertwined, malleable, and dispersed along a convoluted continuum. Nor is any notice paid to the possible stigmatized categories, including what is arguably the most overlooked but most common form of discrimination in Western society, lookism, for being too short, too fat, or too ugly, as judged by superficial societal ideals.
In their research that led to the policy, Jansen and Cranston made no effort to determine the actual diversity, including intellectual diversity, that already exists among current education students and active Manitoban teachers. If they had done some homework, they would have found that a growing proportion of Aboriginal students have been enrolling in the faculty for years in the absence of any patronizing policies. If they really wanted teachers to reflect the incidence of disability, they would have set the quota much higher. By some estimates, 20-25% to of Canadian university students suffer from some sort of mental disorder. Ah, but they're not called quotas. The percentage allocated to each category is an enrollment target and not a quota, Jansen and Cranston wrote in University Affairs, because quotas are often filled regardless of qualifications. This is a semantic sleight of hand. If it sounds like a quota and acts like a quota, it is a quota, even if the target applicants have to meet the faculty's minimum admission standards. As in other faculties or schools of education, these standards are already rock bottom. U of M B-Ed applicants are accepted with grades as low as C in courses they wish to teach together, with a meager grade point average of only 2.5, which is the lowest admission standard of any U of M post-baccalaureate degree program. This means students with GPAs of 2.5 could be selected over those with GPAs of 4.5 if they belong to one or more of the designated categories. This argument is admittedly a bit of a red herring because the faculty has been accepting lots of students with low GPAs for years. Moreover, it does not require applicants to take independently certified entrance tests, as is done in other jurisdictions, or even to submit to comprehensive panel-based interviews as is required by many other professional programs. Presumably, that would be another abuse of the university's hegemonic power. Low entrance requirements are exacerbated by the absence of external accreditation or uniform certification of graduating teachers, as in many other professions including medicine, law, and dentistry. This means that if education students simply complete the required coursework, they are granted certification by the province of Manitoba. By comparison, at the U of M Faculty of Medicine, only 13% of eligible candidates, those with a cumulative GPA of 4.1, who also scored high in their demanding interviews and the accredited medical school admission test, were enrolled in the program for the class of 2016. Given how poorly the Faculty of Education selects and trains its apprentice teachers, it should not be surprising that the Manitoba K-12 students score at the lowest level in Canada-wide standardized tests. Jansen and Cranston are impervious to such arguments. In fact, writing in defense of their new entrance formula, they dismiss the criticism that it disadvantages the so-called best and brightest from being admitted to the Bachelor of Education program by asserting that this argument places an unwarranted confidence in grade point averages as reflections of brightness. There is no evidence to suggest that students with the highest grade point averages make the most effective teachers. Assuming for a moment that this is actually true, then what makes the most effective teachers? 
Jansen and Cranston claim that it is those who are most comfortable and secure in their self-identity. So by discriminating in favor of applicants on the basis of their identity, their entrance formula should produce the best teachers. Time will tell if that kind of creative logic produces the predicted result. But in the meantime, most scholarly literature insists that the most important factor affecting students' learning is, surprise, surprise, the quality of teaching. More particularly, we have long known the characteristics of the top teachers. They are active, warm demanders. Meaning they enthusiastically engage their students in their learning and teach them directly and in an empathetic fashion. If training teachers to become excellent educators is the fundamental goal of an education program, this means ensuring that all student teachers are engaging, articulate, highly literate and numerate, compassionate, and have an excellent understanding and love of the subjects they will teach. Conversely, belonging to any given allegedly marginalized minority is no guarantee of classroom sympathy with the issues faced by that minority or any other. On the contrary, the brouhaha between Pride Toronto and Black Lives Matters teaches us aggrandizing identity politics in the classroom or anywhere else is a recipe for social conflict between competing minorities. There is scarcely any anecdotal evidence, let alone empirical proof, that the social or physical identity of a teacher has any positive effect on the learning outcomes or social esteem of students who share that identity. Conversely, what can be seen on a daily basis by observing children from countless backgrounds fostering genuine inclusion by playing together in Winnipeg schoolyards is that they are well ahead of ivory tower academics like Jansen and Cranston when it comes to real-life equity issues. Over the last 100 years, faculties of education have invented and promoted an almost endless list of false or unscientific school reforms. New math, discovery learning, social promotion, mainstreaming, open area classrooms, multiple intelligence, etc. In this latest fad, which has nothing to do with teaching or learning, shifts attention to a ghettoizing preoccupation with teacher-focused identity politics. Like so many other modern innovations, this one is bound to fail. Until then, it will certainly bring us no closer to realizing Martin Luther King Jr.'s inclusive dream. Thank you for listening. This has been a Frontier Center for Public Policy audio recording. The Frontier Center for Public Policy is an independent, nonprofit, and nonpartisan organization that undertakes research and education in support of economic growth and social outcomes that will enhance the quality of life in our communities. For more information about Frontier, please visit our website at www.fcpp.org.